And he's got it for pretty much as long as you want, I think. Yeah. Go tell him that. Uh, it's good to be with you. Thank you for. Yeah, you can do that. Can you? Record you nice. You've got an email from someone yeah. there. I'll keep you posted. Let's just pray together. Our gracious God, thank you for bringing Sam to us safely and well, and we pray that you'll bless him and bless us through the, the words and the message he brings us. In your Son's name, Amen. Amen. Um, if I'm being recorded on that, do I need to be recorded on this? Okay. Okay, fine. I'll put this there. Brilliant. Um, I think I've been given the title of Reclaiming the Good News of the Gospel in Sexuality or something like that. Those words in a different order. Yeah, sort of. I think I missed out the word human, but I'll restrict my comments to to people. (laughs) Um, So it's good to be addressing that issue. Um, It's something I've been... Uh, thinking about, obviously, in the context of, of ministry for a, a long time, it's an issue that never seems to go very far away from both pastoral ministry within the church and then also from, obviously, wider discussions in our culture. Uh, it's also an issue I've, I've had to think through personally as well. Um, my, pretty much my whole adult life, um, I've experienced same-sex attraction. It's been a, an issue I've had to sort of think through personally, try to work through, try to understand and manage and handle as well and it's uh, been a a privilege not always an easy one to be able to to speak on it um, in different contexts and it's it's good to be thinking about it with with you guys this afternoon. Um, Given the theme of of this uh, couple of days being confident and equipped I thought I would take those two words and my hope from our time together this afternoon is to convince you that the Bible is good, uh, that the gospel is good news uh, to people who would describe themselves as gay or same-sex attracted, and I hope will go some way to equipping us to uh, know how to share the gospel with others, how to minister to it to those who are in our churches for whom this is a live issue. So confident and equipped. Um, Let me just run through a few headings. What I intend to do is to to speak for not quite as long as Lee did earlier, um, but to have (laughs) plenty of time uh, for questions and and discussion. I I find that often you will know some of the issues you want to to think through and and sometimes the question time is more profitable. But in terms of being confident, uh, in order for us to be confident, we need to be clear about a, a couple of things in particular. Um, firstly, we've got to be clear about the gospel. Um, it was wonderful actually to have 2 Timothy opened up to us earlier. Um, I just want us to touch briefly on Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I'll, I'll show you why we're starting here in just a moment. But if you've got a Bible or a screen to run your finger along... Um, Mark 1:14 and 15, words I'm sure that are very well known uh, to many of us. Uh, these are the words in, in certainly Mark's Gospel with which Jesus began his public ministry. This is Jesus going live. Uh, it is sort of ancient world equivalent of a, of a press conference. And uh, we read these words, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. 
Um, You will know, I'm sure, much of what these words mean. Jesus typically is assigning to himself uh, grand and cosmic significance. Um, He assumes the whole of reality revolves around him. Uh, The time everyone has been waiting for, the time God has promised, has come because Jesus has come. And on him turn all of God's purposes. Uh, The kingdom of God is near. In the coming of Jesus, we see the coming and implementation of God's rule and kingdom in this world. And Jesus gives us two applications uh, from his arrival. Repent and believe the good news. Um, I had to repent the other day. I was walking down uh, Maidenhead High Street. Uh, If you've never been to Maidenhead, let me tell you what you're missing out in terms of the high street. Uh, Phone shop, charity shop, nails shop, phone shop, charity shop, nails shop and occasionally a coffee shop which is where I was heading and I I got into that kind of mindless zombie kind of state I get into when I'm walking along high streets, realised after a couple of moments I'd walked straight past the coffee shop I wanted to to go into. Being English I couldn't just turn around in the middle of a crowded pavement because that would look slightly insane. So I was faced with a choice. Do I go into the nearest shop and pretend to be interested for the minimum length of time before I could then come back out of the shop and turn the other way? I came up with a different solution, which I commend to you if you're ever in this kind of situation. Cross the road and then come back the other way and cross over again. It's the best way to do it. Um, But that is, is, directionally, that is repenting, that is turning around. And uh, Jesus is saying that because the kingdom of God is coming, because the rush hour of God's purposes are are almost upon us, we need to turn around and and face the right way. Um, In other words, everyone has an orientation problem uh, and it's spiritual. And we need to turn around and come back to our God. And as well as that, we need to believe. uh, Believe what Jesus describes as good news. Good news with sharp edges, yes, but news, nevertheless, which is good. And we saw something of that goodness in that exposition from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So Jesus calls all people everywhere to repent and believe. That means that for, for anyone there is both a cost and a blessing in following him. Uh, those two things are going to be the features of discipleship for, for anyone cost and blessing. And notice that message is the same for everyone. Jesus doesn't arrive in Mark 1 and then subdivide humanity into different groups and give them each a slightly different uh, kind of message. He doesn't say men over there, women over here, or northerners over there and southerners over here. Extroverts, you can go over there and chat together, and introverts, you can go over there and and not talk and, and look at your own shoes. No, the same message is for everyone. Repent and believe, cost and blessing. Which means there is sacrifice for everyone when it comes to following Jesus. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And uh, I'm sure you will know that the language of taking up the cross uh, was, was a very literal metaphor that people would have Uh, known about in Jesus' time. You take up your cross when you've been sentenced to crucifixion and from the moment you take up your cross your life is forfeit. 
and you have no rights. And of all the pictures to use, Jesus picks that one to give us a flavour of what it means to follow him. So radical, costly change is involved for anyone who would come after Jesus. Now I mention that because since I've kind of been a bit more open about uh, my own issues of, of same-sex attraction, I've, I've lost count of the number of times a Christian has come up to me after a talk like this and they said, yeah, but the, it's harder for you though, isn't it? The gospel is harder for you because it, it really goes against who you are, doesn't it? And I've got two problems with that kind of response. The first is my sexual attractions are not who I am. Uh, that is a dismal way to try to sum up a human being. But secondly, actually, the gospel calls all of us to do that. And I often think if, if someone thinks the gospel has slotted in neatly into their life, then it's probably not the gospel that they've received. Uh, Jesus turns everything upside down for all of us. And I think that's one of the things we need to be clear about because we're often heard to say, well, you know, that the gospel is easy for people who are not same-sex attracted, but for those who are, well, that's great costly sacrifice and that's, that's difficult. And part of the reason we're struggling, I think, uh, to disciple and to win for Christ people from a homosexual background is because we've lost sight of the, the biblical concept of sacrifice. Uh, we've stopped applying it generally so now we feel awkward about applying it specifically. Uh, Jesus says there is cost. He says there is blessing. And whatever the cost, the gospel is still good news. It is always worth it. Uh, the good news that Jesus goes on to unpack in the rest of Mark's gospel, which I won't uh, take time to, to go through now because I'm sure you know it, that good news is always worth it. So the moment we think the gospel isn't good news for a particular person or type of people, actually we call Jesus a liar. So we need to be clear about the gospel. It's cost for everyone and it's blessing for everyone. And then secondly, we need to be clear, if we're to be confident, about the Bible's teaching on sexuality. And uh, I'm sure you will know that there are you know, seven or eight passages that directly speak about homosexuality in the Bible. Uh, we need to be clear on what those mean. They're being, I think, twisted and turned upside down and, and kind of all kinds of hermeneutical acrobatics are being done to them. But actually, I think the key issue is, is looking at what the Bible says about sex and marriage to start with. Because if we're clear on that actually we will be clear on why the Bible does have prohibitions against homosexual practice. And for me, I think the easiest thing is to take people to the words of Jesus and try to blow out of the water the myth that Jesus doesn't ever talk about homosexuality, doesn't ever say anything that would be relevant to that discussion, and therefore he must be all right with it. So turn to Matthew, uh, please. Um, the Gospel, that is, not anyone here who's called Matthew. Uh, chapter 15 and verses 19 and 20. We're going to look at two passages from Matthew that I think help us 
And it is useful actually to take people to the, the teaching of Jesus. We believe that his apostles speak with his authority. But I think it is good to show from the lips of Jesus himself teaching on sexuality that, that bears down on this whole issue. So Matthew 15:19 and 20, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. Jesus is having a bust up with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law over ritual washings and all that sort of thing. And out of that discussion comes this this anthropology of sin uh, where Jesus says that it's out of the heart that we find what defiles us. It's not who we hang around with, it's not the number of times we uh, wash our hands or anything like that. And Jesus says, because out of the heart, and he lists all these different things, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, all these horrible things, come out of our hearts. And in that list, Jesus includes the phrase we have in our Bible, sexual immorality. Uh, translating that the Greek word porneia, which sounds familiar because it's where we get the word pornography from. And porneia was a, a catch-all term uh, in New Testament times for all sexual activity outside of heterosexual marriage. So whenever you see the, the word sexual immorality, that is what it is trying to translate. And it, that would include premarital sex, it would include extramarital sex, it would include prostitution, and it would include homosexual sex. And Jesus says those things, as well as the other things he mentions in that list, make us unclean before God. They're not the only things that make us unclean, but they do make us unclean. Uh, they prevent us from drawing near to God. So we can't say that Jesus was fine with homosexuality. He doesn't name it, but he does include it in the language that he uses. Just as if I say to you, I'm, I'm so you know, thankful that you've all come to this conference uh, this week that I'm going to give each of you a copy of the NIV Proclamation Bible signed by uh, Lee Gatiss. And, you know, you've just come pick one up at the end of this session. I've included all of you in that offer, which I'm not making, by the way. But I've included all of you. Even if I've not named you, you are included. And as Jesus uses this language of sexual immorality, as he uses that word porneia, it doesn't name homosexual sex, but it does include it. Uh, second passage is Matthew chapter 19, a few pages ahead, and uh, verses 3 and following. Uh, the context here is a discussion um, with the Pharisees about divorce. Uh, so they say to Jesus in verse 3, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That was, seemed to be what a lot of Jewish rabbis were teaching. Um, is that okay? Can we run with that? Is that good? And uh, Jesus replies in verse 4 and uh, 5, and he begins his reply with a great way of humbling a Pharisee, which is, haven't you read? You know, 
don't know if you've come across this thing called the Bible, um, but just in case you haven't, haven't you read, verse 4, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. In verse 4 Jesus quotes from Genesis 1, uh, in verse 5 he quotes from Genesis 2. And he does a number of important things with these uh, Genesis passages. The first thing he does is he shows that the words of the writer of Genesis are the words of God because Jesus says in verse 4, the creator made the male and female and in verse 5, the creator said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. In other words, as far as Jesus is concerned, if Moses wrote it, God said it. And so the narrative of Genesis itself is the word of the Creator. Just kind of ratchets up the importance of what he's about to say to these Pharisees. Second thing he does is he shows that marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, look at the logic of what Jesus says, verse 4. Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? That is how we've been created. And then as he continues, he shows us that the application of that is this institution of marriage. God has made us male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. We have gender, verse 4. Therefore, verse 5, we have marriage. That doesn't mean that everyone who is gendered has to be married. Uh, we'll see that in just a moment. But it does mean that we wouldn't have marriage if we didn't have gender. Marriage is predicated on gender. There is something about this male-female distinction in creation that makes the, the uniting of a man and a woman a unique union. There are all sorts of ways different people are, are different to one another and seem to fit well. You might have someone who you know, has complementary interests to another person. But Genesis doesn't say that we were created left brain and right brain or left wing or right wing or black or white or whatever it might be. We were created male and female. There is something fundamental about that difference that undergirds marriage. And so the coming together of a man and woman in marriage is a union that is different and unique. Uh, that is the union which leads to two becoming one flesh. And it is that one flesh union that is the context we're told elsewhere uh, that God has designed us to, to both have and raise uh, children. So Jesus shows us that marriage is in its nature heterosexual and then finally from this passage, Jesus shows us that the only godly alternative to marriage is singleness. So Jesus shows them the importance of marriage. God's involved in it. It's not just a kind of a human arrangement and therefore you can't be trivial about divorce. You know what God has joined together, let man not separate. And so in verse 10, the disciples get a bit of cold feet and they say to Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, flip. Man, if that's what marriage is like, let's just, you know, 
Let's just skip over that bit, shall we? That's a bit too serious. That's, that's a commitment. You know, I, I struggle to have a, a nectar card because that's more loyalty and commitment than I can cope with. This, this sounds even worse than that. And look at how Jesus replies. They question whether you know, it's going to be the best thing to get married. Jesus immediately then talks about eunuchs. Jesus doesn't say in verse 11, yeah, you've got a point, you know, try before you buy, bit of cohabitation. He doesn't suggest, you know, a series of one-night stands as a way of, of trying to, you know, find some kind of sexual intimacy without the whole hassle of commitment. No, the, the point at which someone questions whether or not to marry, Jesus talks about eunuchs. And uh, without wanting to make Lee's eyes water any more than talking about Cranmer did, uh, eunuchs were those who were single, sometimes because of certain things that had happened to bits of them um, that meant they kind of had to be. And Jesus says in verse 12, some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Uh, Others have been uh, made that way by men and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. But notice the only godly alternative to heterosexual marriage is singleness. Uh, There is no third option of, of gay marriage just as there's no third option of cohabitation. And so when we see that the, the Bible's teaching on, on marriage and, and sex from Genesis amplified and expanded on by Jesus himself, we almost don't need those other passages that directly prohibit same-sex activity. Almost don't need them. Because what the Bible has already said, that the positive vision the Bible has for sex and marriage is the grain that those things go against. And certainly I think in in the way that we we seek to teach on this issue and and commend biblical sexual ethics to others, we want to teach the positive that lies behind the prohibition. Sometimes we just teach the prohibitions that don't do that, don't do this, don't do the other. There's a positive reason why we are given those prohibitions. We're given a positive vision of marriage and sex, not least as God's visual aid for the relationship between Christ and the church. So we can have confidence, I hope, in what the Bible says on this. But secondly, we want to think about how we are equipped to deal with this issue in a a kind of pastoral context as it comes up in our churches, how we help those for whom this is an issue they're struggling with, how we respond to those who may come along to our church from a non-Christian background who are in gay relationships. And I thought I'd throw out a few uh, bits and pieces that I've been thinking through and working on and and we can chat those through and and have some discussion. So, confident, equipped. Uh, Firstly, we need to create a culture in our churches, in our fellowships, where it is safe to talk about this issue. Uh, if we only ever talk about homosexuality in the, in the context of what's going on in Parliament or our societies drifting ever further away from its Christian heritage, 
then we're going to make Christians within our churches who struggle with this personally feel profoundly unchristian for having the struggle in the first place. If we only ever mention homosexuality in the context of you know, that pagan world out there and where it's going, it'll make it very, very difficult for a Christian to say, actually, I'm struggling with this. And so one of the things we need to do in as much as we have opportunity is to show that we would expect there to be Christians for whom this is an issue. And one of the things that first triggered me to ever tell someone it was an issue for me was, was a, a pastor preaching uh, on Romans 1 and he started talking about the issue from a, a kind of pastoral point of view and he said, I know that there will be people in this church for whom this is a, a very personal battle and struggle. And I hope you will feel very free to say so if that is you. So he gave us an expectation that actually there would be some of us in the church family for whom this would be an issue. In other words, he gave me permission to have the struggle and then made it very, very easy to share that in a way that didn't make it sound like it was going to be catastrophic if I did. Uh, it is often, I've met you know, dozens now of, of Christians for whom this is an issue. The big issue for many of them is not knowing how and who to tell. And uh, I remember the first time I shared with that pastor, even though he'd made it so easy to do so, I still felt as though I would probably burst into flames the moment the words kind of left my mouth. Uh, we need to make it easy for people to talk to. And the more society goes on about this issue and the more we have to try to defend a Christian viewpoint, actually sometimes the harder it can be for our brothers and sisters to, to talk about this themselves. So we need to create a culture where it's safe to talk about. Secondly, we need to respond in the right way when people do share on this issue. And uh, again, I'll, I'll take you through what that pastor said to me when I first kind of blurted it out to him. Uh, the first thing he did was he thanked me. Uh, he recognised that it would have been a, a very difficult thing uh, to have shared and to have admitted, I think, the fact that I've been, you know, asking him about inane things for the previous 15 minutes as I tried to pluck up the courage to share on it probably indicated that to him. And one of the fears that uh, we can have if we're struggling with this issue, uh, one of the fears we can have about sharing on it is that it, it will make the issue more real. And if we're desperate for it, to, for it not to be an issue and we're trying to sort of sweep it under the carpet, actually we worry that if we tell someone then it's going to be real now. And I don't quite want to come to terms with that yet. There's a fear of, of being rejected, fear of being a disappointment uh, in having this issue. So it is normally a bit of an ordeal uh, for most people to have to share on this issue. And so it's good to, to thank them for their honesty when they do that. Because it's, it's a blessing, isn't it? When someone shares something difficult and personal with us, they're giving a lot of, putting a lot of confidence in us. So it's good to acknowledge that. It's also good then to listen carefully. Uh, this pastor didn't immediately flick open Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6 and walk me through them. He just wanted to find out how I was. You know, when did he first start to realise this was an issue? How's it been? What would have been the real ups and downs of it? 
And actually it was good for me to try to sort of walk him through some of those things. I think it, it helps us get a, a sense of where people are at as we talk to them about this issue. Gives us a sense of, of how much they've thought it, through it biblically and how much they've kind of got their heads around it in a healthy way. Which leads to the next thing, which is to help them to think biblically. Uh, which is to say, help them to realise this issue doesn't disqualify them from being Christian. Uh, it is not unchristian to struggle with sexual temptation, otherwise our churches would be very empty. Uh, it doesn't disqualify them, but nor does it define them. Uh, we are not our sexuality. In fact, I'm not even sure the whole concept of sexual orientation is a particularly helpful one. It makes things sound far more rigid and fixed and binary than actually is often the case in reality. I've met people who are a bit same-sex attracted. I've met people who are pretty much exclusively same-sex attracted. I've met a lot of people who've had a phase of being same-sex attracted, um, often during puberty or in their late teens or early 20s have gone through maybe a few months or in a, some cases a, a few years of same-sex attraction and it's just sort of gone on its own accord. And so it's, not, it's just not constructive to think, well, if I experience even a smidgen of same-sex attraction, that's my sexual orientation, that's now who I am and that's why the message of our, our culture is so profoundly destructive because it says that's what you're feeling therefore that's who you are therefore this is the package you now have to kind of adopt and, and live out uh, these things don't define us and actually one of the great passages to, to take people to on that is 1 Corinthians 6 let's just uh, turn it up now Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 uh, where Paul says do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God do not be deceived neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters nor adulterers nor male prostitutes nor homosexual offenders nor thieves nor the greedy nor drunkards nor slanderers nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God and that is what some of you were he says In other words, those things may have characterised your lifestyle. But they are not now who you are. They may still be issues where you struggle, hence the warning not to dive back into those things. They may still be very strong temptations, but they are not who you are. Who you are is defined by being in Jesus. That's what some of you were. It's not who you are now because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And the message of the Bible is who God declares you to be in Christ is your identity now. That is who you really are. And the biblical ethic is therefore to live out in your lifestyle who God has declared you to be in Jesus 
And friends, that is so important. It's important for all of us, actually, but it's particularly important on this issue because trying to live by the ethics of the Scriptures is not trying to be someone that you're not. You're not in denial about who you are. You're not trying to be some other guy you can never actually be. Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, it is sin that goes against the grain of who you really are, not holiness. And so we mustn't let these things define us. Which means we mustn't, therefore, when someone has shared that this is an issue for them, we mustn't make that the only thing we ever talk to them about. Uh, We've recently started up a a group that meets kind of once a quarter at our church for people who do uh, battle with with homosexual temptation in our church. And it's interesting, one of the guys was sort of giving his his sort of story uh, to the rest of the group. Uh, Our senior pastor was there. And uh, this guy said to the pastor, you know, I love that you always ask me how it's going, but I've got to tell you, I'm struggling with anger at work at the moment far more than I'm struggling with same-sex attraction. I am being ruthless at work and and God is really convicting me on that. Uh, It is good to ask people how stuff is, is going from time to time, but if that's the only and first issue we ever talk to people about, we are implying that it is who they are. That it's the lens that we now see them through. Um, It won't be their only battle, Uh, it's not my only battle and oftentimes it's not my greatest battle. So all of that was under, you know, how we respond to people when they do share this issue. Um, Three other very quick things and we'll we'll speed up now. Um, In our churches we need to have a healthy view of marriage and singleness. Um, I've met people who have had... uh, sometimes very intensive and, and long-term times in their lives of, of same-sex attraction who have changed quite dramatically. Um, I know one guy who had been experiencing exclusive same-sex attraction right up until his late 20s. He had just got to the stage of, of telling his, his friends, telling his family. It was a bit of an ordeal. This was about 30 years ago, and so the church was even less kind of good at sort of accepting that kind of thing that it is now and he'd just gone through that whole ordeal when he suddenly met this girl <laughs> and uh, discovered he was deeply profoundly sexually attracted to her um, and loved her too which is always a good thing as well um, <laughs> and they've been happily married ever since and he's not really experienced any same sex attraction since then it's almost he said it's as if someone just flicked a switch and overnight he changed Um, there are a number of people I know who still experience a measure of same-sex attraction but who've been able to to marry people of the opposite sex and have a a healthy and wonderful marriage. But there will be other people for whom marriage is is unrealistic. And as we've seen from Matthew 19, uh, we need to help people in that situation to embrace uh, the biblical calling to be single. And we need to do that in a way, uh, again, this, it's, it's so good for us as a church that this issue is coming up. Friends, I know it's a headache having to deal with the issue of gay marriage and homosexuality, but it is highlighting a whole load of areas where we must work better. It's going to do us good. 
Because one of those things, I think, is in, in so much of our evangelical culture, we denigrate singleness. Um, the number of times I've, I've heard people of a, perhaps a certain generation say to people of a younger generation at our church, you know, when are you going to get yourself sorted out? Um, I know of one church where the 20s and 30s group was called Pairs and Spares. Which is perhaps a sort of particularly bad uh, expression of that. Um, I bumped into a, a lovely Christian lady recently who I hadn't seen for about 15 years. Um, I was back visiting uh, my parents and bumped into her. And because I hadn't seen her for 15 years, I was asking how her kids were. They were teenagers when I'd last met her, so that I figured they were now in their late 20s, early 30s and wanted to know how they were getting on. And she said, well, so-and-so's married and the other one's engaged, so they're both sorted now. And I know she didn't really mean it like that, but it still made me think, well, okay, so what does that say about me? I'm, I'm unsorted. I'm a loose end. Uh, singleness is a gift in itself. It's not just the absence of being married. Uh, it is a gift from God. Uh, Paul commends it in 1 Corinthians 7. He uh, reminds single people that there are certain troubles that they are spared. Uh, seeing a, a number of families at church at the moment really struggle with their kids turning away from Christ. I can't imagine how painful that must be for them and for as long as I'm single that will never be a pain I will experience firsthand. It's painful enough experiencing it via them. There are certain troubles that the single person is spared. Marriage is not a walk in the park. There are also certain opportunities. Uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 7 about the single person being able to serve in a way that is, is devoted and undivided. Not that married people are kind of compromised in their, their service of God, but you've got different levels of responsibilities and, and commitments. Uh, you will know that you're feeling kind of tugged in, in lots of different directions. As a single person, I have a, a capacity both for friendship and ministry that I would not have, or at least I shouldn't have, if I was married. But above all that is the reminder that Jesus was the most complete and fully human person who ever lived. And yet he did not marry. So marriage is not intrinsic to human fulfilment. It's a wonderful gift. And I hope those of you who are married are, are very thankful for that gift. But despite Cameron Crowe movies, your spouse does not complete you. And if you think they do, you are putting a burden on them they were never designed to bear. And what you end up doing is implying that people who, isn't, people who aren't married are, are somehow just slightly less human, slightly less realised as human beings. Uh, we need to have a healthy view of, of marriage, but we mustn't idolise marriage as we try to promote it. We need to have a very healthy view too of singleness. Um, next, we need to foster true community in our fellowships. Um, one of Paul's favourite terms for the church is the household of God, the family of God. And the whole brother-sister language isn't us trying to be kind of, you know, hip. Um, it's not honorary, it's real. 
just as Paul could refer to Timothy as his dear son in the faith, so we refer to one another as brothers and sisters. Not as cousins. Um, Paul told Timothy to treat older men not as great uncles who you might see once a year at Christmas time, but as fathers. And we see each other as brothers and sisters. If God is your father, then his people are your family. And so our churches must reflect that. Our biological families must be not sort of sealed off and and separate from from everything else with high walls and the, the kind of drawbridge pulled up, but actually as being part of a wider spiritual family. And so I'm always optimistic because I think the church is God's way of reaching the world. Um, I think the church, if we take the teaching of the the Bible seriously, will be the best place in the world to be someone who experiences same-sex attraction. And if we can foster that sense of true community, it means that we're not making singleness a life of unbearable isolation. And actually we offer a very compelling narrative to the world around us. And that goes way beyond the issue of same-sex attraction actually, doesn't it? The church should be the place where we, we most feel able to share the worst things that are going on in our life. Uh, the US pastor, uh, Tim Keller, uh, once said that the church should be like a doctor's waiting room not the waiting room for a job interview. Waiting room for a job interview, everyone is dressed very smartly, everyone's looking impressive. And you're not going to let any sign of incompetence or weakness kind of show at all. You're going to project the most kind of, you know, together, competent image you can. In the doctor's waiting room, the assumption is everyone's here because we're sick. You don't really care what you look like. Um, You know, what are you in for? I've got this or I've got that. And the death, I think, of pastoral care is this this idea that we try to project at church this idea that we've all got our lives spiritually sorted out, that our marriages are are wonderful, that our kids are all terribly cute and precocious and that I don't have any problems at all. Actually, as we begin to open up about our weaknesses, we, we really do see the church becoming family together. And then the final thing, and then we'll, I'd love to hear what you, your thoughts are, uh, is we've got to remember the sufficiency of Jesus. Uh, one of my favourite verses at the moment is, is Jesus saying that he is the bread of life. Uh, we take bread for granted. Um, I'm on a low-carb diet at the moment, at least I'm meant to be, uh, that can of Coke and biscuit notwithstanding. Um, so I'm trying to avoid bread. And you can survive quite happily without bread. It's, it's easily done, but you couldn't in the time of Jesus. And in many places today, if you don't have bread, you die. And we begin to get that sense of what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread of life. I went out to an Italian restaurant recently with some friends to celebrate someone's birthday. And of course, the waiter comes up at the start and says, would you like any bread? And he sort of thinks, do we want some bread? No, I think we'll be all right. We're going to about to order lots and lots of food. So, no, no, we're fine with the bread thing, thanks. And Jesus isn't that kind of optional extra of, would you like a bit of Jesus in your life? You know, a little bit of 
spirituality around the edges just to kind of set you up before the, the main thing happens. Jesus is the staple. He is what we need to spiritually live. And the wonderful thing is because he is the bread of life, he satisfies. For so many people I know, myself included, with with same-sex attraction, the attraction is very often bound up with idolatry, just as it can be quite easily with, with heterosexual attraction. Uh, you begin to desire someone not just because of you know, the, the qualities and things that they've got going for them or whatever it might be, but they start to embody what you think will make your life full. Uh, they, certainly with same-sex attraction, often it's, it's someone who embodies what you think you lack as a man or a woman. And so it's good to be reminded that Jesus is the bread of life. I was uh, preaching last night on uh, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Let me finish with a few uh, verses from Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Listen to what is said about Jesus. He's been appointed heir of all things. And through Jesus, God made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. All of which means that he doesn't come into your life to be your PA. Okay, this is the guy who enables you to breathe by his word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he has become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And you get to that verse 4 of of Hebrews 1 and you've you've had this build-up Truth after truth about Jesus. Amazing truths about Jesus. And it ends up with, so he's better than angels. And you kind of think, well I knew that before verse 1. That that doesn't sound like the great climax we were heading to. And there's lots to say about angels that I'm not going to get into now. But one of the things to say about angels is that there were times in the Bible when people were tempted to worship them. And if Jesus is superior to angels, he is superior to any being we encounter that we are tempted to worship. Any person that we become so enamoured by that we think, actually they will make my life full. Jesus is far, far better. So I kind of waffled on a bit there. Can we pause now and, and I'd love to hear if people have... Comments, questions, thoughts on this? I'll turn the recorder off because discussions never make good recordings. (laughs) Okay, thanks very much, John. Okay. Thank you.